Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. The title of today's podcast is A Wake-Up Call for the Church We Can't Ignore. A Wake-Up Call for the Church We Can't Ignore. And so this week, I want to share with you an interview I did with Carrie Newhoff on the Barna Church Pulse Weekly Podcast. It was such a great interview uh, as we touched and moved through a variety of topics, uh, so much so that we ended up giving it a title. Uh, which is the title we have for this podcast, A Wake-Up Call for the Church We Can't Ignore. And we felt it was a significant enough uh, interview that we would share it with you here. So thank you, Barna Church Pulse Weekly. God's wake-up call for the church is, of course, much more than what we're going to talk about here. But I'm convinced that what you would, would, but I am convinced that what you will hear in this podcast is part of that. Our particular contribution uh, that we are making to God's broader wake-up call to the church uh, around the world. Now, our contribution is grounded in church history, uh, and we are convinced that the next generation of leaders, our generation of leaders, needs the ability to draw from the riches of church history to lead uh, into the future that God has for us. It provides perspective and depth and breadth and a global perspective. It's part of the wake-up call. Uh, and so uh, let me invite you to check out this free ebook we have on church history, uh, at emotionallyhealthy.org church history. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash church history. And the ebook simply is called Church History Matters. And uh, check that out. But for now, let me invite you to join uh, Carrie Newhoff and myself as we talk about a wake up call for the church that we can't ignore. Enjoy. Pete, it's good to be back together again. Thanks for coming back on with us at Church Pulse Weekly. Carrie, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for the invite. It's a joy. You got a brand new book and an endless amount of opportunity to speak into a growing crisis, which appears to be uh, the mental health crisis, not just in the church, but also amongst its leaders. Um, what is the relationship, let's start here, between mental health and emotional health, Pete? Because I, and, and, and let's add spiritual health there, because I wonder if they're all mixed together. We say, I'm spiritually healthy, but emotionally, I'm a disaster. Like, yeah, how, you know, how are they all connected? Boy, it's a, it's a good question. You know, mental health and emotional health. I mean, I, I think we're all on a spectrum, aren't we, right? Have you <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, in fact, I, I, there's a great book that was written many years ago with DSM-4, now it's DSM-5, but the whole oh. spectrum, you know, we've, we're all, we've all got our challenges. And uh, mm -hmm. so- my focus is emotional health. I, I consider, you know, we cross a line where now we're getting to professionals who need to be, you right. know, intervening. I, I, I'm a pastor, you know, like yourself, Carrie. So I come at it as a pastor leader equipper, mm -hmm. and I'm doing integration of emotional health and uh, and spirituality. And and basically, my story is that the way I was trained and developed as a leader and as a pastor did not deal with the emotional component of who we are. Mm -hmm. And so I had a crash and uh, ended up in a therapist office. And I remember learning how to feel, you know, and, and like, listen, you know, feeling and loss and grief and I, I didn't have any vocabulary for these things. And it just, uh, you know, God met me, God met Jerry and I, my wife, and and it opened up a whole new world for me theologically. And so I ended up going back to my professors and say, how did I get into this like kind of a compartmentalized spirituality? He goes, oh, that goes back to Augustine, you know, it goes, and I went back to my professor. I had a, I had a professor at Princeton Seminary where I took a, a course in Augustine and 
and he was a world scholar. And I remember him saying in class, oh, you're all Neoplatonists. And I was like, why? And I went back to him. I said, how are you Neoplatonists? What is that? Like dualism or what is that? Yeah, kind of like the body is is bad and the spirit is good. Oh, like okay. A, you yep. know, kind of like, so like yep. we, I guess why you're hung up on sexuality because you can't even talk about it. Because you got this kind of over-realized eschatology, everything spiritual and 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 uh, and one of my Old Testament professors said, you know, it's how we understand what it means to be made in God's image as a whole person mm. in the Hebrew sense of we're whole people, which has different aspects, not parts, but aspects like relational and social and spiritual and intellectual and, and emotional. And, and you talk about being made in God's image, you've got to, discipleship's got to address all of that. So my mm. work in the early years in the 90s was like, what does it mean to disciple someone and do development in the emotional component. And that was my early work um, digging into that. Um, so it's been a great journey, but I would, I'm not a professional therapist. I'm a pastor. So that's mm-hmm. my angle coming at it from the perspective of leadership development, discipleship and unpacking that. And then this, you know, the high level stuff that's beyond, like I, I refer out to people who are specialists and gifted in that area. How do you assess whether you are emotionally healthy or not. And I know you've written books on this and they're yeah. diagnostics, but like just for the guy who's listening or woman who's listening, they don't have a pen nearby. It's like, you know, let me do a little gut check. Like, how, how do I know how I'm doing? You know, I, 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 it's a great question. You know, how, how do you break it down? Cause I remember yeah. I used to hear about it even as a right. young Christian before I got into all this, but no one ever quite dug into it. Like, how do you actually get at it? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it, it's elements such as this. It's it's like you, your aware awareness of, first of all, self-awareness, okay? You're aware of what, what's going on inside of you, your interior life. Life is not just everything out there. I'm building my family, my work, my money, my career, the church. We, we're very good at the outer life. We go to school for that, mm-hmm. but we're not so good at, you know, working on the inner landscape, what's going on inside of our interior life. So it begins with and I was, and I was your classic type A guy, just making it happen. You know, what am I feeling? You know, what's going on inside of it? What's happening inside of my body? So just that mm-hmm. self-awareness is like the first place it starts, but that requires a slowing down. Um, and then it's things like knowing how my family of origin impacts who I am today. Yeah. Big area. Um, you know, going back three, four generations we're we didn't just come out of nowhere but that I'm aware of how my family, my culture has impacted me today. So everything in how my family did conflict, how it measures success, uh, how my family does relationships, and sexuality, or, I mean, the list goes on, money, uh, bonding, connecting. That's a big element of it. Grief and loss is another big element. I, you hmm. know, two thirds of the Psalms are laments. You have a whole book called Lamentations. And I didn't do, I, I wrote a paper on one of David's laments in seminary, but we never made the connection like, oh, like that's part of the Christian life is, is <laughs> part of growing into maturity is. Was sad David. back then, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Guess back then it wasn't so good. <laughs> even Carrie, even just loving well, like I didn't, loving well was not considered like a real important thing, like how I do relationships. Yeah. And uh, so when I think about emotional health, it's getting into all of these areas that we just tend not to talk about very much in the church. We Mm -hmm. preach sermons about it, but we don't actually get it, break it down and bring people somewhere with it. So how did you first realize you were emotionally unhealthy? My wife quit my church. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, she'd been complaining. Honestly, I mean, I of course there were symptoms, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, so, so walk was, us through some of those early symptoms before before Jerry quit. Oh, I, I think one was my life was spinning out of control. I, mm-hmm. I had the sense of always having too much to do in too little time, feeling overloaded, hurried, rushed. Um and having a pit in my stomach often or feeling not a knot in my neck. Mm-hmm. But I I was just I was just I think the word for me was like, it was like this, this uh, elevator. I couldn't get off it. I just, I think it was just moving so fast. Now, again, at this point I'm pastoring. That was one, one really big indication was I was doing way more than my inner life could sustain. Mm. I wasn't paying attention to me. Um, I think another indication was I, I wasn't, I wasn't experiencing a lot of delight and joy. Uh, in serving Jesus. I was just doing a lot for Jesus, building our church. We we're church planting, planting other churches. Yeah. I was a quote, successful pastor, but I was on the inside. I was, I was miserable, yeah. but I was doing it for God. And then I think it, it, and the symptom was just, I think in our, um, uh, our marriage was stuck. Hmm. I mean, we were, we loved each other, but we didn't know how to love each other. Um, that before was Jerry drew the line, line in the sand, how did you justify that to yourself? You must have justified it to yourself. I'm this is a little bit of projection on my part because it's yeah. a very familiar story. Me in my 30s, yeah. I'm like, no, that's just normal life, man. I'm successful, leave me alone. Like, what was your self talk that made you think you didn't have a problem? Well, there was fruit, <laughs> there was fruit, people were coming to Christ. Uh, maybe they weren't changing deeply, but they were coming to Christ. It was shallow, but what did I know? And like, honestly, everybody else was doing it. Like I was, everybody else seemed even more out of control. And so (laughs) I thought I'm doing okay. And all my models uh, around me, the standards of success, the way success was measured, I was meeting Mm. those metrics. So uh, as long as things weren't falling apart, like it's kind of holding it together. And we're moving forward. I'm like, and everyone's praising me and telling me I'm doing great. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I just justified it. And again, the, theologically, I was fine. Like, in other words, there wasn't a, a, a paradigm of a biblical framework of saying you're you're missing the core of Christianity here. You're <laughs> you're not you're not living what you're preaching. Uh, but no one ever, ever said that to me. And I, I sure couldn't see it in myself. I was too busy. Well, and did you think, like now looking back, you can say you're not living what you're preaching. But at the time, did you think you were living what you were preaching? You know, Carrie, here's a funny thing about it. I was talking to someone about the other day. I was having days alone with God. Yeah, I mean, I, I was. I know. I was having a lot of time with God. I, mean, I had a better prayer life before I burned out than since I burned out. And I'm like, <laughs> give me that part of my unhealth back. Please. <laughs> but you know, it was out of anxiety. Again, we're back. Uh, it was so much out of, I'd go uh, for a day alone with God, but it wasn't so much for communion with him. Right. I was getting, I, I needed from him. I needed to get from God to get the work done. And so almost, it was almost like a more of a strategic day out of prayer than it was actually a day of being with God. The whole mm. emphasis was not, it was getting the work done. So it was, God became a means to an end. And I, and I became very attached to certain things, right? It wasn't I, letting go was not like on the agenda. It was grow, grow, grow this thing. Hmm. It was very, you know, it was, I look back, I'm like, oh my 
God, you know, it's so, so what happens is it, I, I think there was just a lot of false self in there and I couldn't distinguish it. And I was going too hard and fast to even pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So um, let me give you a little context because many of our, our leaders listening, our subscribers have heard it already, but you can't because of the way we're sequencing these episodes. But um, we had a conversation with Julie Wilson and Kayla Steckline, both of whom lost their husbands to suicide, both of whom were arguably at the pinnacle of their career, so to speak, today. Both were very young, 20s or 30s, right? So super young husbands, very successful, large growing churches, um, theoretically happy family, and um, both Andrew and Jared took their own lives. So died by suicide. Um, in their analysis of the time leading up to Jared and Andrew's death, both of them said that there were pressures on the church from the church and the pressures that the pastors put on themselves, that Jared and Andrew put on themselves, that were obviously unhealthy. And so I asked him this question. I want to ask you this question. What is it about the church that is systemically unhealthy that produces people like you and me who have to go through some kind of cathartic moment to kind of come up with a new way of operating? Is there something wrong with the system that is producing that in your view? You know, I, I Carrie, I think people are people. Hmm. I mean, if you look at the life of Jesus, he was under a lot of pressure. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, the crowds pressured him to be something he wasn't. Right. They wanted him to be a king. His family pressured him. They didn't like what he was going. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they sure pressured him. He wasn't the religious leader they thought. I mean, his whole his own family was, you know, in hometown of Nazareth rejected him. I mean, he, he yeah. in a sense, he was under enormous pressure. So I think there's a I don't it's funny, I don't look at the church system as much as how we develop leaders. I, I go back to how I was formed and shaped as a pastor leader, um, having large gaps to it. Uh, I call it Americanized Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and because I think we walk into the church system and God's intention is that we actually shape it out of our deep spirituality. So we've got enough differentiation, enough uh, maturity, enough depth of inner life that we're actually walking into this system. Of course, it's going to be twisted. You know, it's going to be <laughs> worldly, but we have done enough inner formation ourselves that we walk into the system and we actually bring it to a new place. The problem is if I go in looking for the church to give it to me, that's a problem. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. I think people are going to be people. The world is the, the world system has been so powerful since the days of Jesus. Not it hasn't changed because beyond behind that are I think powerful cultural and demonic forces. I, for me, the issue is how we're doing our formation of people. I call it discipleship because all I see as leadership is leadership development is really high level discipleship. Okay. You know, that's why I ended up, I ended up focusing on discipleship to get to leadership because I realized a, what, think of it. I'm going to make you, I'm, you know, think of Jesus and 12 disciples. He's discipling them to be leaders but it's high level intensity discipleship. And I think that's what leadership is. If I was going to do a seminary, I would be, I'd make people go to a therapist. I would have them have a spiritual director. I'd have them live a rule of life as a kind of a monastic rule of life. I would put a lot less emphasis on the intellectual development, although I love Greek and Hebrew and history and systematic theology and all that, and much more on your prayer life, your formation, your inner life. 
your, you know, your family of origin impact on who you are today, how you do relationships, sexuality, all that is core to formation. You're going to be a leader, but we don't touch so many of those things very much in our development of leaders. So we have recurring scandals and crises because the pressure of leadership is enormous. It is. What is the Americanized Jesus? And how is he different from the crucified Jesus? Well, interesting. You know, I, I, you know, I, I've got this chapter: follow the Americanized, not the no, follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. And it's not so much an analysis of American culture, believe it or not. Mm. Uh, think, oh, Pete's just analyzing American culture and how it's 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 actually I actually got it from uh, the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew. I spent about three to four years studying. Matthew, if you could imagine, like in my morning time with God. And at one point, I go there over and over again. I would just do a manuscript study, just kind of going through it, meditating, Lectio Divina, and all that stuff. But at one point, I just said, let me just, let me just write down how, what were the pressures of Jesus discipling the 12? And I ended up with four things that were the, were the core issues that he had to hit again and again and again because they'd been formed by the religious culture of his their day, the Judaism of their day. And it was so in their bones. We like to say Jesus is in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. It was so in their yeah. bones. And I call it the Americanized Jesus, but actually it's the temptations of the wilderness. It's what the disciples were dealing with in the first century. And I got four things you want to hear real quick. Oh. Yeah, I do. Okay, the first is um, be popular. That's the Americanized Jesus, be popular. Mm-hmm. And we see that, you know, when, when Peter, Peter was into Jesus, but he wasn't into the crucified Jesus, you know? So when he heard about the cross, he's like, never Lord, like he's going to lose. He's, he's number one on the team. Like he's going to, he's not going to be popular. if This goes down. So he's like totally against it. And the same with us, right? You know, jump down from this temple. Everyone will believe in you. One of the temptations. So American eye Jesus is, is be popular, you know, but be, be impressed people. And yet the crucified Jesus is, uh, you know, reject popularity completely. Just reject it. And, and you, you have nothing to do, and Jesus had nothing to do with being popular. The second is uh, to be great. Be mm. great. Uh, show that you're great, you know, and, and Jesus says, no, no, reject greatness. And, Mar- and, and uh, Bruner has got a commentary on Matthew, and he uses it, he calls it greatnessism. And he goes, <laughs> reject greatnessism. And uh, Jesus rejected it categorically. And um, uh in fact, Jesus, there was nothing great about Jesus by the world standards. His ministry yeah. wasn't great. The 12 weren't great. He was, his beginnings weren't great. I mean, everything about him was not great. In fact, he was most impressed with unimpressive people, if anything. And so we reject greatnessism. And again, we want to be great with him alone, whatever that means. And then thirdly is, is, we, is the world's discipleship is, you know, disciples wanted to be great. They wanted to be a success. Hmm. By the world standards, right? And 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 the idea of a crucifixion was like horrific. And Peter yeah. was going to be a failure. And there was no way he was going that direction. So again, you got Peter. Again, you I have to say Peter, he wants to be great, he wants to be successful, he wants to be popular. And then the last thing is the you know, I call it the Americanized Jesus is to to avoid suffering and failure. <laughs> <laughs> which is every prayer meeting you've ever been to. Right? Exactly. That's why I go. Yeah. I, that's why, that's why I spent my days alone with God. So I wouldn't fail. The whole, point, <laughs> the whole following of Jesus was to keep myself from failing and, and, you know, and suffering. I don't want to suffer. 
And uh, and yet, you know, with the, the following to crucify Jesus, no, you actually embrace suffering and failure. So it's the exact opposite of everything. So it's actually the Americanized Jesus is just like we personify as a culture hmm. everything that Jesus is trying to get out of us, you know, greatness. Even again, how we measure success is so screwed up, and I measured it all wrong. I, you know, I I ended up saying, "What is success for Jesus? What is it?" And I realized, you know, what success is becoming who God wants me to become and doing what God calls me to do. Period. In His way, in His timetable. So I could be declining in number and succeeding, tremendous. I could be growing in number and actually failing. And that's John the Baptist. I mean, he, he his numbers went down. He was succeeding wonderfully. And I think we've got it all. I think we're so Americanized in our thinking and, you know, post enlightenment, this American culture. I mean, you're Canadian, you know, North. No, America. it's similar. So it's similar. West. No, and actually we've exported it to Africa, Latin America, Asia, the Mideast. We export this, but it's really because it's, it's underneath it. It's, it's that it's new Testament. It's, it's the very struggle. Jesus had to, had to get out of the 12 disciples. Hmm. greatness success popularity he had to drive it out of them and it just took time it was you're right there's there's a correlation pete between success and faithfulness that i think is present in the west or or in the americanized jesus and yet you know there i mean i don't want to give you a statement let me give you a question you know Failing isn't necessarily a sign of faithfulness. It can be a sign that you're doing something wrong. So how, yes. how, how do you discern that? Like, how do you know? Like, and, and growth is not necessarily, and I see this a lot online. People say, oh, if it's growing, there has to be something rotten at the core. Exactly. Is that always true? Like, wh- where, where, where do you find your, how, how do you measure? What are the criteria? Well, I think it's the, I, I, I think, again, as a leader, some megachurches are definitely God's will. God gives some men yeah. and women to be, to, to establish large ministries globally and organize it's just it's a gift from and, God. and some failing churches are just failing churches right exactly <laughs> it's and they're being so again we're not measuring it by these external criteria necessarily ah. but I think we're looking for some quality markers internally right I think we're looking mm. for some people are bearing fruit and abounding you may just be with you know I was with one pastor from Damascus you know and Syria what does it look like to succeed in the middle of a civil war? You know, but I think there's some, you know, I'm abiding in Jesus, right? John 15, I'm, I'm, I'm bearing fruit, but that, what that, what's it look like to be bearing fruit, right? I think some quality yeah. of, of life coming out of us to other people around us. And I, it's a, it's a, it's an, if we're not relaxing in Jesus, in fact, I ended up with out of this, this huge gospel study I did over a few years, which I ended up going from Matthew after three, four years, then going to John. Hmm. You know, then going to more because I was just so captivated by this. I said, I don't, what does it mean to follow Jesus and make a disciple? But I, I, I think there's an invitation to relax in Jesus and to detach from the world. And so we attach to him and listen, we listen to him. What, you know, Matthew, Matthew 17, listen to me. My, and Jack, Peter wants to, you know, he's got plans to put three boots up when he gets his revelation. And the, the father's speech is listen. You know, listen to him. And I think that's the core of, I, I wish I had been a more focused on that. Am I, early, am I relaxing in Jesus? Am I trusting in Jesus? Hmm. And that's, that's the translation of one scholar of what does it mean to be trusting in Jesus? It's the modern translation might be, it means to be relaxing in Jesus. Wow. You know, let it, 
And I, that's what I measure myself. Like, am I relaxing in Jesus today? Letting myself be held in his love. Like that's a success. And to me, if I can be quote, growing something, but I'm anxious, I'm failing. Hmm. So I've got some internal markers that I'm watching on a daily basis. Is my, is my being with Jesus and myself sufficient to sustain what I'm actually doing today? We're doing, I'm doing this podcast with you. Yeah, I've got something to do after it. But it's a constant monitoring moment by moment of my interior life with Jesus, my communion with him, and my communion with myself, and the pace at which I'm living. That's a that's a that's a that that just forces me to slow down. Yeah, yeah. So this is a bit of a weird question, and feel free to say next, okay? Because yeah, yeah. it is a weird question, Pete. Um, but you know, here we are, 14, 15 months into this global crisis. If you were spiritually grounded, healthy, emotionally healthy prior to the culture, the crisis, what might you be feeling now? And if you were unhealthy prior to the crisis, what might you be feeling now? Do you see, do you see where the yeah, question yeah. is going? Yeah. So I think it'd be 15, de- in both cases, you're depressed. I mean, <laughs> it's depressing. It is, yeah. it's, it, is de- it is painful. It's depressing. I, I heard the word New York Times use the word languishing. Languishing. It, yeah. Adam Grant languishing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it's really a hard time. I mean, it's a, it, there's a sense of, life being suspended on so many levels. I mean, on all age groups, right? If you have children, teenagers, young adults, I mean, it's just a tough time. So I, so that's, we are in, we're in the middle of a global crisis that's not Mm -hmm. going away. So it's depressing, but I think if we're it, 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 at the same time that are, for many of us, we came into the COVID and we did not have the equipping we needed mm. to at least manage and go forward. So but I, I wouldn't, I don't beat up anybody for that, but I think it's an invitation from God to the church in general that, okay, the kind of discipleship we've been doing in American, in the, in the, in the, in the Western church in particular, really needs to be shifted from this consumer entertainment, just having lots of people in a, in a room, just consuming sermons and podcasts to actually like, I've got to get equipped to follow Jesus here. I've got to get serious. And I think that's the wake up call for the church. There has, I asked Dr. Anita Phillips this, um, and again, you didn't have the benefit of, of, of pre-listening, but the question is on my platform, I've just heard from so many leaders who are like, it's no big deal. I want to get back. I want to get everyone back in the room. Um, Not really an issue. I don't live in New York. I don't live in California. It's, it's like almost like a denial thing is what I keep picking up on, on my channels over the last year. Um, She said that's, that's kind of a white evangelical thing, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. What would you say, like, what is going on if there are leaders who are listening? I don't know why you guys are still talking about all this trauma, this crisis, like my life's back to normal. But is, is there anything under, is that masquerading something underneath that? I'd say it's more of a, again, it's more of a poor theology. I mean, <laughs> listen, if you didn't do, if you don't do feelings, let's say grief, here we are in the middle of grief and loss. Okay. Maybe you're living yeah. in a part of the country where you've not had 
gigantic losses. All right. Right. So I know I was with the woman the other day. She goes to a, a church, a Latino woman. They lost a hundred people died in their church. So right now, India's full crisis. Yeah. So the fact that maybe you're not, but we care about India. I care about God loves the world. And so I'm, I, I must, it's so critical as pastors and leaders, we lead our church to be able to grieve their losses. In other words, this issue of enlarging your soul through grief and loss, this is a critical moment of the, of a formation of our churches. So to get back to normal and just move ahead, you're, you're, I think of David after in second Samuel, when, when, um, Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle. He stops mm. the armies and he writes a lament and he commands the troops to lament. And so we need to lead our people to grieve into a healthy grieving. It's not over yet, but this is not a season. The Bible speaks of seasons. Mm. We're in a global season here that's so intense that the, the world needs us. The church needs us to lead uh, people into appropriate Grief, and I think there's some rituals to do. I think singing laments is not such a bad thing. Talking about it, giving people space. They say one of nine people in North America have someone who died. Know someone at least who died. You know, they've experienced loss on some level. But I, I even talk to parents whose teenagers have not been in school. You know, there's been so many losses that mm-hmm. people that need to be validated and heard because we can't grow into maturity without absorbing and integrating our losses and thus allowing God to do new and deep work in us to grow us up into people like Jesus. I mean, he was called man of sorrows. Yeah. Yeah. You you share about discovering treasures buried in grief and loss. Um, What are those treasures? How do we get to them? Well, think of it this way. There's, There's lots of treasures, but a few are things like Jeremiah, in Lamentations, when he's just watched cannibalism and Jerusalem Jerusalem raised to the ground, and then he has his revelation of God. You know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You know, his mercies never end. You know, great is your faithfulness. That came out of a deep well of pain. Mm-hmm. And there's this revelation of God that can come no other way but through loss. That's one. I think we, we also, um, our masks come off Mm. and loss you you don't care what people think is so unimportant and uh because it just doesn't matter i mean you're at a funeral who cares what your how much money you make or (laughs) or what your title is i mean it just grief and loss just levels everybody it just Mm. brings us all in the same place it's very human and so Mm. all those masks come off and you know it, it was henry now who wrote years ago the degree to which we grieve our losses is the degree to which we are compassionate people in other words, the quality of our compassion is directly related to the level in which we are able to engage our own grief and loss. And people don't look at Christians as compassionate. They, they see us as judgmental. Oh, yep. And that's directly related to how we handle loss and grief, which is we medicate, we deny it, we go around it. That's why we love addictions, right? Whether it's alcohol or pornography or food or our work. Me, I, I medicated my pain with work. Yeah, I don't have to feel it. I'll just get busy. You get rewarded, right? Get a promotion and a raise. But mm-hmm. this, you know, nobody wants to lean into grief. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. hard. How do, so how I, do you I, lean into your grief? Well, I'll tell you, you know what? I, I mean, I, 
one of the ways I do it, I'll take, I'll say in a pandemic for a minute, what's been important for me with the pandemic has been to read obituaries. Oh, wow. Of people who've died, read their stories just to be present with them. And for a long time, I would take every night at dinner and I would, I say, we're going to have a moment of silence. I remember those who've died. Now, again, we're in New York, but it's not just New York. It's, I mean, right. It's, it's the world. Um, gosh. And every person who dies is a human being with a story with mom and dad and brothers and sisters and kids and neighbors. And, oh my gosh. So that's one for me. Um, and journaling is really important. I, I think of David, if two thirds of his Psalms are laments, yeah. um, he's writing, right? Poetry, he's writing songs, and, but it's his, it's his two thirds of that 150 are griefs and laments, but he's doing it before the Lord. So for me, I've got this little exercise, explore the iceberg of just, what am I sad about? You know, and mm-hmm. now I'm, I have my 26, 26 year old daughter is living with us right now and came home because uh, obviously COVID and all that. And it's lonely living in an apartment by yourself as a single person and everything's remote week after week, month after month. We're, we're 13 months into this thing now, going into our 14th month. And uh, boy, oh boy, I mean, uh, uh, to be present with her disorientation and loneliness of missing friends and, mm. and work. And that's just one person here you know, let alone I have four daughters, uh, but every one of our kids are impacted. They're young adults and, and people are married, but, um, and just the people we know who've died and, and, uh, and I think the, and the news, I mean, I, I do care about the world. We, I think what makes us different is we care about the world getting vaccinated, not just ourselves. Right. <laughs> and um, cause God really does love the world. He loves the world. What happens if you don't grieve your losses? You repress it. And so what happens is we've got a lot of repressed people hmm. like Jack in the boxes. I was, was, I was talking to someone, you know, a pastor in her sixties who just had an affair, you know, and, and so why would a person the 40 years of pastoring just launch into a reckless affair and blow everything up. And part of it is just repression. Hmm. Stuffing it down. And so often people act out because they just haven't been given a, context to be human like to be angry to be sad to be afraid to be confused to be disoriented i mean it's but yeah that's the bible that's and i if, if we don't allow in fact jerry and i were just talking about repression <laughs> and why we need silence and stillness is so critical we've got to lead leaders into silence and stillness because they you, early on in their in their journey with Jesus because otherwise they keep it gives the spirit time to get into your false self and go into those layers kind of like an archaeological tell and dig out the false layers of self and he leads us into crises right and all these pains and things are falling apart but when things are falling apart they're actually coming together you know and mm. but we got we got to help that is part of the process or else they repress it and you stuff it and then they end up exploding out and uh, so I, I, you know, we're hopefully want to be guiding people through the stages of life and their journey with Jesus so that they're not stuffing it and being hyperreactive and exploding out. What is the value of the discipline of silence in a season like this? Well, 
I said a discipline of silence, not just season like we're in now, but yeah, I, I see silence and solitude as they're indispensable. Yeah. Uh, Dallas Willard said this years ago that they're the two most radical disciplines in the West hmm. is silence and solitude. And I, I, I think he's correct. And, it, you know, is it possible to really mature in Jesus without a practice, a serious practice of silence? I'm talking about not just silence as a method. I'm talking hmm. about a, a spiritual practice before the Lord in his presence of not getting something from him, not intercession. It's it's a contemplative prayer. It's being with Jesus. It's no agenda, letting go. Uh, I couldn't survive without it. I mean, it saved, it saved my life over the decades, but mine's only deepening as I get older, not decreasing. Yeah. You know, I went on a walk yesterday. My wife was away and uh, normally I'd put my AirPods in, listen to an audio book, some music or a podcast. And I thought, no, I had them with me. I left them in my pocket and I just went walking in the woods for 45 minutes, looking at nature, reflecting, talking to God. And I, 20 years ago, that would have killed me. I yeah, been like, yeah. I'm wasting time. I'm not effective. What, what, what could I be doing? And now like if I don't get an hour of silence a day, I feel like I haven't lived. Wow. I don't know. It's weird. Weird. Yeah. I do at least 20. I set my clock and I do 20 minutes as part of my morning prayer of just being still before him. But I think more importantly, it's just now it's become just a part of my life. Like you said, like uh, before I'm going to speak, if I'm in front of a crowd or a group of people, I'll, I'll take, you know, five, 10 seconds just to be mm. still and see the people, you mm. know, be, be present. And like I said, get in the car, not put the radio on yeah, and, or a podcast on and just be silent, you know, and let there be that quiet. Again, we're, it's, it's noisy out here. It's noisy inside. (laughs) It's noisy noisy, inside. It's noisy everywhere. Uh And so this cultivation of an interior and an exterior silence is so, it's hard in the beginning, but once you, once you taste it, um, and I feel like I'm trying to lead people to taste it, not just run from it because it's so all the distractions. It's so hard, but we were made for it. Like there's this, once you taste it, you realize, oh my gosh, God made me for this uh, as a as a mm. core dimension of my spirituality. It's not. I I don't think it's a supplemental. It's like Bible study and prayer and silence and Sabbath. These are like core formation disciplines. Not there's certain ones that were saved by Jesus alone. Yeah. But there are certain core practices that are essential if we're going to be maturing and growing. And I would put silence and Sabbath in there. I think the, I think the pandemic and the sense of out of controlness going on around us, that there's so much we can't control. Those are invitations to let go. I, you know, and I, silence is such, is such a surrender to God's presence and his activity, not mine, his, my will to his will. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the work of the Christian life, isn't it? Just, yeah. Your will, Lord, not mine. That's a scary prayer. If a person doesn't think it's a scary prayer, they don't get it. <laughs> it's a <terrifying laughs> yeah, 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 it really is. Um, so your new book is about emotionally healthy discipleship. What distinguishes emotionally healthy discipleship from emotionally healthy spirituality? Yeah, this book was written to pastors and leaders. So, I mean, emotionally spirituality would be kind of our broad book for the, and that's what, that's what our course is built around. It's, it's, it's for everybody. Okay. I wrote Emotionally Healthy Discipleship is probably my final, you know, theological biblical book to lay out. These are the biblical foundations of a discipleship in a culture that deeply changes lives. In other words, 
this is this is in my humble opinion this is like a new operating system of how to how are we going to do church in the 21st century with all these massive challenges coming upon us and so i i delineated seven marks and they're they're theological marks but they've got to be in in our, our lives as leaders and we bring it to the church things such as be before you do mm. you know um receive god's gift of limits you know, embracing grief and losses, you know, God's treasures in grief and loss, follow the American, follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. So I've got, you know, make love the measure of spiritual maturity. Mm-hmm. You know, we lead out of brokenness and weakness. So I, what I try to do is really expound on them as clearly as possible. And with the goal of saying, this is the vision yeah. of a, of a new, I, I call it like a new operating system of a computer. It's like, this is, but it's got the a bandwidth to expand and take in all that's going on around us. But it, it draws on 2000 years of church history and, and uh, yeah. you know, church fathers. And we've got to go outside of our kind of a Western, you know, post-Reformation church and mm-hmm. be much broader globally and much deeper historically <laughs> to get the riches of a spirituality that's got some depth to it that we can actually multiply deeply changed people. I'm not interested at this point, Carrie, I'm, you know, I'm old enough. I, I don't, I have no interest in building a crowd. I have zero interest in entertaining people. I, I want to build churches that are missional, that make a difference in the world. And we're actually developing people that are sustainably 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years faithful to Jesus in their mm-hmm. marketplace, right? In the politics and arts and all areas of life. But we've got enough depth in our churches because, you know, these crises are going to just keep coming. I mean, I, I would yeah. expect clear sailing. <laughs> Uh, in our in our increasingly secular world by any means but that's okay the early church did just fine mm-hmm. in a very pagan empire they did fine they they exploded yeah so I'm, I, I'm not worried about the outside i'm worried about the inside of mm-hmm. the quality of our churches so you have thousands of leaders listening right now um they're exhausted a lot of them are exhausted the the demographics or the 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 data says that but so does our anecdotal experience and they're looking to find their footing again in an unstable world. What what final word would you want to leave them with, Pete? You can't fix it. And I can't either. And the most important person to lead right now is yourself. Hmm. And that is no easy task. To be leading people when events are changing almost, you know, weekly, monthly, uh, there's so much we can't control that to be anchored in Jesus and yourself, you know, peaceful in a storm because he's in the boat, that takes a miracle, but God is good at miracles. And I would just say, you want to be open to listen to his voice of how he wants to uniquely lead you to slow it down get anchored so you can listen to him and offer a peaceful word of leadership to lead your people forward and free them from all the anxieties, but you've got to get free yourself. And I would just say, that's your number one goal. And if you can do that, you can pull everyone with you. Uh, In fact, you won't, you can't help but bring everybody with you. Hmm. That is a great word, Pete. Always great to talk to you. Uh, people, tell us about your podcast, where people can find 
all the things you're producing online. These yeah, so I, I do a podcast. It's called the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. And you can check that out wherever podcasts mm-hmm. are found. And I, I would encourage you to pick up the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book. It's a great introduction, not an introduction. It's just a great primer. It's my best thinking of what is this paradigm. And But it's a great start to get you thinking, okay, this is like, wow. And uh, I would check it out. There's some free discussion guides at emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. And I just kind of, I wouldn't worry about your church. I, I wouldn't worry about bringing it to anybody. <laughs> I would just worry about bringing it to you uh, and let God come to you for your own life first. Uh, and remember, God is not in a rush. Wow. Uh, it's going to be okay. It's a good word. Pete, once again, thank you so, so much.